Hi there, and welcome to episode 52 of the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. My name is Gary Turner, and I'm your host, and I'm very grateful today to bring you Kevin Green. And Kevin is uh, author, strategic advisor, multiple non-executive director and speaker. He's somebody that was heavily involved as part of turning around Royal Mail uh, where the, when they were losing £1.5 million per day. And he shares some incredible insights, uh, which we can all learn from. Uh, around empowerment and engagement of our people. What I find really interesting about this optimistic, balanced and challenging conversation in parts in a good way um, is that Kevin didn't go the traditional, if you want to call it traditional, degree route. Um, so he's somebody that didn't really fit the traditional mold, uh, the academic mold. He went via BTEC, HNC, then worked in economic development for, for the government and then learned his CIPD in the 80s. So I just think it's a really powerful and important message for everybody out there, but particularly those in education, those young people, you know, those level seven, level eight degree apprenticeships are certainly something that should be seen as as good value as the uh, formal degrees. And uh, Kevin can attest to going a different route to that, which is often promoted. Um, also, what I found really interesting is just how ferocious a learner Kevin is. Really, really interested me. And he spoke about one book, which I've not read before, called Natural Born Learners by Alex Beard. And I just want to leave you with one other reflection in advance of this really engaging conversation. Is Kevin cited that we are incredibly curious as human beings, and you don't want to take that away from people when they come to work. So I'll just leave that with you, something to so to put on the coat hook for a second before you get involved in this really enjoyable conversation, please do let Kevin and or myself know if any of this res resonates with you and that we look here forward to hearing from you shortly. Cheers. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a human-centered podcast from the listening organization, and this evening, I am really excited to be bringing you the listener, Kevin Green, who is a multiple non-executive director, strategic advisor, and now author. So good evening there, Kevin. Uh, good evening, Gary. Looking forward to it. Oh, fantastic. Likewise. Well, look, would you mind expanding a little bit more on that introduction I just gave for you? Maybe just a bit more, bit more depth, a little bit more richness about who you are, maybe a bit of your background and how you've arrived at all of these, uh, these wonderful and exciting tasks you do today. So I suppose most people would, uh, would know me as for the last 10 years, up until March of last year, I was the chief exec of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation, which is the professional body for the recruitment industry in the UK. I also sat on our global board, the uh, uh, World uh, Employment Confederation. Prior to that, during prior to the privatization of Royal Mail, I was HR director of the letters business within that business, and I joined when we were losing a million and a half pounds a day, and uh, went and was part of the team that, that turned that organization around. Prior to that, um, I was um, I ran my own HR consultancy business for a 12-year period. I started. I was asked to run it by some non-execs at 27, 28. Did a management buyout four or five years later and ran that for 12 years. Had a great time working with businesses like Orange and Fuji and BAE Systems and Unilever. So blue chips, and a lot of it was working with HR directors and boards around their people strategy um, 
And I suppose what you can say, if you look back on my career, um, it was it's all about business and it's all about people and the two things are entwined. And I think that sort of sums up the, the journey, really. Oh, that, that, that's brilliant. I, I, I think, you know, that's going to play lovely into our conversation um, to, today, Kevin. But I think I'd like to go back a little step, if I may, to your backgrounds. I think what's really inspiring for me is actually, you know, with all of that great experience, that expertise you've, you've, you've demonstrated and shared over the years, you didn't go the degree route, Kevin, I don't believe, in terms of your education. No, I mean, I was, um, my parents had one of those interesting calls from school, you know, one of those calls I suspect parents dread. I mean, I was always <laughs> deemed to be quite bright at school. I was going to be the first working class kid from our family to go to university. But I was really into sport and I didn't particularly take, I wasn't particularly turned on by school. I had one particular lecture, uh, uh, tutor or whatever. But other than that, I didn't turn up. I wasn't paying attention. And they called my parents down to the school and said, we think he should uh, do something else because he's really not interested. And uh, and and you know that was the start so I just was my parents said you need to get a job so I went and got a job this was comes 1979 so I went and worked in a local authority um, and just started doing an administrative job I don't expect those jobs exist anymore but uh, that's what I did and then I suppose over the next three or four years um, my athletic career I mean I, 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 I had a good time uh, doing my sports and I trained every day and I ran for the county and I ran for southern counties. I didn't quite get an international best, but I did do a couple of international tours. I ran in the alternative Olympics at Prague and stuff. So I was a good athlete, but I was never going to make a living at it. And then what happened was I got promoted a couple of times and I realized that about 24, if I was ever going to do some interesting work, I needed to do some qualifications. So I encouraged and uh, studied part-time to do a BTEC national then a, like a, what was then a BTEC higher national, like an HNC. And I was then, by that time, in economic development. So I was doing a lot of work around the census and unemployment data and um, started to do inward investment and giving grants to businesses to take young people on. And I got really interested in business and also the human side. So I encouraged them to support me. And I went off in the evenings and did my CIPD in the 80s. So that was really my start. I got all my education while working in a local authority and then started to get a couple of HR jobs. And then somebody I worked with was running an HR consultancy and they appointed me to sort of work with them. And we were doing a whole range of sort of management development programs and looking at reward systems and all sorts of stuff. So I had a very rich education, but certainly not the standard route. It sort of came to me in uh, a bit later and I had to work a little bit harder for it. I mean, you look back and go on reflection, you know, I mean, my son's just come finished universities now in work. I do think that uh, I, I, I would have liked the experience, but, uh, you know, that's life. You know, you do it in your own way, don't you? Absolutely. And I just, I just think it's brilliant. Thank you very much for sharing it because I just think it's, it's a nice balance, you know, to, to think, you know, Chief Exec of the REC, you know, HR Director of the Royal Mail, I think for anybody that's listening, that's maybe starting out in their HR career or someone that's maybe got young children, I just really love that you've shared that, Kevin, because I think it just shows you you've got the, the ambition, the energy and the desire. Everything is open to you. Yeah, I'm a great believer in that. You know, I mean, I think one of the things that, that I suppose is at the heart of my career is this whole thing about learning, you know, and, and I think I, I mentioned to you earlier that 
I think when you look back and you think, well, how did I get into this? I mean, one of the things I take from sport, and I was coached from about age of 12 or 13 up into my early 20s, three or four different coaches was, you know, you learn how to um, get the most from yourself. You know, people that help you set goals, that give you feedback, that hold up the mirror you know, reviewing results, thinking how you can get better. But it's a learning process, learning about yourself, learning about your training, learning about what other people are doing. I was an avid reader. I always have been. I've always got four or five books on the go, uh, some novels, but a lot of sort of business books. And uh, in those days, it was all about sport. So, you know, I think I just absorbed an enormous amount from that experience early in my life. And, you know, I think when I look back, I think that's most probably... Um, you know that thing about you put the effort in you think about it you try stuff you learn you reflect you try again and if you keep doing that you'll keep improving or whatever you do no that's, that's beautiful if, if we start to bring things a little bit further forward in your career you know i can't let it go for the listener now for, for those that may be listening outside of the uk would you mind giving a little bit more context of that incredible time that you stepped into the royal mail shoes when the business is losing one and a half million per day. I remember those stories, Kevin, on the, on, on the medium. You know, what, yeah. what, what, what was the context there for, for our listeners? We do have a global... Uh, so, yeah, so I mean, this is a business, it's the, it had a monopoly. It was the first incorporated business in the UK. So when you start talking about culture change, here was an organisation with 400 years of history. You know, the stagecoach, the Queen's Mail must always get through. And it was an operationally driven business, 200,000 employees when I joined, um, and it had just lost its way. The world had changed around it. We were being deregulated. Um, it, was huge. it was beginning of competition, but the business had just not been able to adapt to its environment and a very quickly changing environment. You know, the whole thing about email was taking off, people spending less mail. And we just couldn't, or the business certainly prior to me arriving in 2003, um, couldn't really reinvent itself. Um, And what happened was I'd done a big piece of consultancy work with a guy called Tony McCarthy. He was the group HR director at BAE Systems, where we sort, you know, we did one of the first outsourcing of HR transactional services, and we put in a audit model and all of this sort of quite interesting stuff and anyhow he got the job working for Alan Layton who was the chairman and Adam Crozier who was the chief exec and um, Tony said you need to come over and have a look at this organization so I came over to have a look at uh, do a consultancy project on HR a bit like we did at BAE we had 4,000 HR staff can you imagine 4,000 HR people <laughs> a budget of 157 million um, but the business was broken. You know, we spent 300 million on consultants the year previously. We had invested in overseas postal businesses because we couldn't reinvent the core business. We weren't investing and the government weren't allowing us to invest. We had a new regulator that wanted to open up the market. So you had a fantastic British institution, one of the most trusted brand in the UK. Um, people love their posty and their post office. So people feel, consumers feel very passionate about it. But as the monopoly was being taken away and we really needed to compete, there was just a, a, a need to reinvent the whole organisation. And that meant, to be honest, from a change perspective, breaking things and um, breaking ways of working, patterns of work, um, closing things, changing stuff, investing into it. But we just had to do it at pace. And it was quite brutal 
And I mean, when I was talking at a conference today about change and transformation, and I always say that change is context, you know, context specific. And what I think you had in this institution was just, you know, a requirement, a burning platform like you wouldn't believe. But with a lot of people that were the sort of the earth and work incredibly hard every day. I can remember going out to see some postmen and they went, look, I used to carry 10 bags of mail. I'm now carrying 13 bags of mail. I don't know how we're losing money, but it's not got nothing to do with me working any harder. Um, and they were right. Um, it was just about our approach to the market and what we needed to do to give them the tools to undertake a, a big transformation. And, and a lot of it was down to managers managing people more effectively. Um, and I can elaborate, but it was a great time. It was five years of my life. Um, you know, I ended up being, a, uh, so I went in as a chief learning officer which was to manage all the um, OD team, which was big. Uh, we had 12, 13 occupational psychologists, about 40 people in OD, a big change team, two colleges, 500 trainers. So just trying to sort out the learning part of the organization. Uh, and we did that at pace very, very quickly within six months. Um, and then it was, I was then promoted into the, uh, the UK HR uh, letters job. And, and, and this was just, working with the operational business and the people in the center to create a new narrative about what we wanted to do to um, empower managers, to change managers, to assess managers, but to give them confidence to have different types of conversation, to work with the trade union. I, uh, we hired McKinsey to work with them on their business plan. We got them to work with psychologists so that they understood some of the work that we were doing. So it was just a fantastic experience. Um, one that I most probably wouldn't want to go back and do again, but it, you know, we went from losing one and a half million pounds a day, so 750 million, 800 million, to making 600 million profit in four years off the back of trying to do it in a way which took our people with us, you know, engaged them, our engagement scores, we measured it every month, every unit, you know, we basically created this environment where managers knew that we were interested in the conversations that they were having and we were seeking feedback from frontline staff because we knew at the heart of this business, the major transformation was around um, empowering our people and getting our managers to just manage people effectively. You know, um, and, that, and that involved, you know, absence management. I, was, I suppose one of my famous stories is... Um, um, and I can remember going on uh, breakfast TV about this because we were on the front page of the Telegraph and the, the Daily Mail, two big national newspapers here. And the story was I gave away 39 new cars. So we gave away 39 um, Vauxhall Astras or Alan Layton gave, went round every site. He was our chairman. Uh, and the reason we did that was we put in uh, every one day of absence cost the business 50 million pounds. Um, and we had an average of 12 days per person and the trade union used to phone people up and say, you need to um, take the rest of your, your sick leave because you've only taken eight, nine days. You've got another three or four to take. So we had to get managers to manage that, you know, to, to do, you know, to refer people to occupational health, to treat them well. And in the end, we just, we put in the whole hard process. We needed to, to manage it more effectively because we hadn't done. But at the same time, we were trying to take our people with us on this journey and, and one of the things that we were key, keen to do was to make sure that the change was hard and soft. So that was the mechanistic hard piece. The soft bit was we wanted to 
say to our people that we would show the spoils of this, that they, if they could help us change the organisation and get it to survive, it was going to be a better place to work. And as part of that, what we did is we ran a competition in the 31 operational areas and the eight areas of head office, which said that you don't take a day off sick, um, you know, we'll put your name in a hat and we'll draw it. And they didn't believe we would do this. And we drew out the names of the hat live and we gave away 39 uh, Vauxhall Astras. We then did uh, Caribbean cruises. I can't remember. We did it for about, four, you know, every six months we would do it. And what it was really about saying is in the competition is you've got to be in it to win it. You know, if you, you know, if you work with us to help us reduce this, we're going to try and share the spoils as best we can. You know, even though we were losing a million and a half pounds a day, we put up the basic wage. We created a bonus structure. We leveraged our buying material to create a scheme about bikes and cars and loans. We just tried to basically modernize the relationship and really support our people um, because we knew that there would be fewer of them and that those that were there were already working hard and we most probably need them to work a bit harder. But what we were trying to say is, you know, this is about all of us creating the type of organisation that we um, want to work. So a lot of it was about, you know, real engagement. So for an example, the chairman and chief exec would spend uh, three days every quarter, five sessions a day talking to line managers. And the reason we did that is we were saying, look, you're the most important people. You're the people that engage with our frontline staff. They're working hard. We want you to be able to give feedback, encourage them, help those that want to develop, develop. But, you know, just changing this from a very adversarial, confrontational environment to one where we're saying we want to take you with us on this journey. We want to save the business. We want to protect your jobs. And there's a great institution in here that if we can modernise, can survive. And, you know, I'm delighted to say the government privatised it for 3.3 billion. It should have been 5 billion, but that's another story about politics and stuff. But, you know, the business has been in the FTSE 100. So, uh, it, it, you know, I'm absolutely delighted to be part of that great British institution for a short period of time and, and played a role because it was, you know, the stories we used to get about what people did, you know, posties would, you know, look after ill people, help what stay with them while ambulances arrived and get, people shopping for them if they were uh, disabled, you know, deliver, do all sorts of things for people. And, and, and I think it's one of the, it's part of the fabric of our community, really, the, the, the Royal Mayor and the job it does. Uh, beautiful. Thanks so much uh, for sharing that. I think it's such a rich example. I've just got a million and one questions. <laughs> Kevin, honestly, just, it brings up so much. But I think the first thing for me I'd like to ask you, you mentioned as part of your introduction that you're quite a ferocious learner. You know, you continuously in your books, you know, you like to grow yourself personally. What would you say yeah. the number one, if you could just pick one personal learning that took you, that you took away from that very diverse experience of Royal Mail, but what was your number one learning above all else through that, through that period? I think that people can do quite, quite an amazing things. I mean, I think, you know, I, I mean, you read this stuff, don't you? And we've all experienced it in, in, in um, isolation where a team does remarkable stuff someone sets a goal and and they individually or collectively knock it out of the park but I think you know we we saw a whole you know I can't remember I'm just trying to think when we did the fight there was most probably uh, a couple of thousand operational managers who we put through an amazing learning experience and it was all about them taking responsibility and accountability and 
uh, we were giving them the tools. We were giving them uh, not just learning, but we were giving them stuff on a weekly basis. We spent did all those sessions with Alan. But it was about empowering them to take responsibility and accountability and make things happen. And they stepped up for it, you know. Uh, and they had to do some really difficult stuff, you know, about sorting out their walks and taking control of the, the rostering and the absence management from the unions. Uh, and I think, you know, to do that type of training program with 2,000 managers at the same time. Now, some of them didn't make it, but a very few small percentage. And then what you could see, you know, we were then getting them together three or four years later, and they were demanding stuff, you know. It wasn't us pushing them. It was them going, can you help us with this? We need to have control over that. And it was just an amazing experience of how if you really invest in people, you give them the space, you give them the development, you give them the tools, they can achieve remarkable things. So for me, it was one of those moments where I can remember a couple of sessions where you could just see the energy and enthusiasm that these managers had to you know, run their own business, to do it in the right way, to take their people with them, to care for the people. You know, we had a death a month. We had... Suicide. We had, you know, the problem is when you have two hundred thousand people. There's always something going on with those human beings, and you know, for me, that was most probably just a remarkable experience to just see those amount of people step into a void, really. You know, and they, while we gave them everything we could, there were times when they were on their own because it's a dispersed organisation. Two thousand delivery offices, seventy-four factories, shift managers, shift leaders, leaders working through the night doing that remarkable thing you know people don't understand you know this was 33 planes 33,000 trucks every night 100,000 people working through the night to get them out to process it to take it through the the the, the thing and to just to get that to, to change was you know in, in an empowering way I think um, something I'm quite proud of and, and it and it it reinforces my belief, you know, about the work that I've done and lots of other people that I'm sure will be listening to this have done, which is if you give people the skills, the capability, the space, the confidence and the belief that they can achieve remarkable things. I, I love particularly those last couple of things. I'd like to touch on those with you as we start to get into some of the nuts and bolts. As, as, as our listeners know, Kevin, it's very much a very deeply human-centered pod, podcast. So that, that space and those beliefs, how much, how important is that to you to actually ensure that people that you work with, people that you serve, have that space to stop and to reflect and to actually have time for learning? Well, I think, I think you know, uh, it is important. I mean, we all do. And I've done, a, you know, the job that I was doing at Paul Mao, the job at the REC, these are, these are all consuming jobs. They're traditional sort of leadership jobs but actually the bit for me is about if you create you know you if you set ambitious goals for people if you paint a picture which i think what leadership is about about you know organizations for me are just groups of human beings you know forget the mechanistic stuff forget the processes forget the technology they're just groups of people and if you can paint a narrative or a picture for a group of human beings and say to them, look, we're going to support you. We need you to reflect. We need you to grow. We need you to learn. And here's the way that we're going to help you. Um, we want you to try stuff. You're going to fail sometimes. That's fine. As long as you learn, reflect, go again. Then I think, you know, you're going to create an organization which has got amazing capacity. 
uh, and capability. And, and, and that's the belief, you know, and it isn't just through saying that it's through, you know, the work I did, you know, Royal, Royal Mail was one example, but then I went to the REC, I arrived in 2008, went straight to the recession, the recruitment industry shrunk by a third. So I was immediately into a restructuring. So my timing was off. I was able to grow, you know, go into a growth industry and ended up, you know, we only had 85 people, but I can remember doing work with my people, which was, look, we've got some fundamental choices here. You know, the industry is shrinking around us. We can't deny it. I will support, I'll go to the board and ask that we use reserves. But, you know, we either, you know, we make 25% of the people redundant or we all take a pay cut. Uh, and, you know, you think about it, you reflect on it, and the people come back and said, we'll take a pay cut. I think it was the right decision. I mean, I did it as well. I believed it was the right call, but I was wanting them to take accountability and responsibility. And we paid people back over time. And, you know, we grew the organization. We put all that money back. We put, and more. So it's been very successful over that 10 years. But it was all about people. It was about getting them. So what products could we do? How could we improve the standards? How could we uh, have more impact in terms of the media? How could we, you know, uh, train and develop recruitment businesses? How can we challenge that? So it was about saying you can do anything. So it's always about growth. It's always about learning. It's always about the opportunity to do better and go further and faster, but in a way in which, you know, people are, uh, are doing it. You don't do it onto people. You ask them to come on the journey with you and you support them. Yes, I think there's a couple of things I think is really powerful, Ken, in what you just described. One, that painting a picture, you know, that storytelling element. I think that's so, so powerful. But also this REC example that you, you went out, and I can only assume, Kevin, it's with transparency to everybody to say, look, this is the issue we've got. These are our options. You know, what do we want to do? Like, I just think that is so, so powerful. You know, for me, I don't see that often enough in the workplace. No. We, we treat adults as adults. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and, and I, I do believe that if you treat people as adults, give them the information and data, and, you know, your job as a leader is to do two things, really, to to say, look, I want to engage you in thinking about this. Now, you know, in that situation, it was very much about showing some vulnerability. Look, I can, I can make this call, but I'd much rather involve you in it because I think it creates some difficulty for all of us. We've all got mortgages and kids to 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 feed and housing to pay for and you know all the hygiene factors in life but you know and it was a part of you know it was very early in my tenure it was in the first year but it was also about saying you know i can tell you what we can do we'll break even next year we'll make some money we'll put it back i'll pay you all back what you you give up in this year uh and we'll be a better place to work you know i was also saying that you know, we're going to have to grow and develop and do things, but we haven't got any money. So we'll, we'll do some peer to peer coaching. We'll do some focus groups. We'll think about, we'll do innovation groups. We'll do ways of working. And, and we, we went through quite a, a difficult period, but we came out much stronger, you know, and if you want to make an organization strong, get people to understand where you are, the reality of it, the choices that are available and get them to really understand, ask all the questions, you know, there were loads of questions that I can remember that whole day that we went through that process, but I then restructured the organization. I said, look, I don't think we're fit for purpose. We need to operate in a different way and more commercial 
why you know we it's too silo orientated and again you do the change process by engaging the people because what you're doing is you're dealing with human beings so you need to again explain the narrative explain the journey and then allow them to raise their concerns and their issues and their fears and then you go back and deal with the concerns and the issues and the fears and that's what builds the confidence and the momentum to 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 step into it and to, to make the change so you know i i, I think you know I, I learned a lot i suppose in my early consultancy career of working with lots of really good leaders and managers and you know the problem we have is you know i don't know i don't know what the percentage is 20 percent understand what we're talking about perhaps 25 percent and then the most and many organizations are still very dysfunctional and managed in the wrong way so the opportunity for us to prove that this stuff works is you know i suppose the work i've been doing for the last 35 years and i know you're passionate about as well gary but you know it's about creating organizations which allow people the space develop people treat them as adults um and encourage them you know it's a bit of encouragement so look you know i we can do this. I believe that you can do this. We can turn this around. This isn't, you know, a lost cause. We don't have to see this as negative. There can be lots of learning and we will come out of this in a better place. And, and both at the Royal Mail experience and at the REC, both of those were true. Uh, that's, that's, thank you so much for sharing those, Kevin. That's, that's brilliant. I, I, you spoke about vulnerability, you know, it's part of this podcast title. I, I, I can't let that one go. <laughs> so, if you were going to define, just, just out of interest, if you were going to define to somebody else who maybe doesn't really understand vulnerability or they're really maybe afraid of it, you know, how would you describe vulnerability to somebody else? What's your, what's um, well, I suppose if I was there, you know, I think it's about being um, truthful. It's about... Um, saying unto people what you really perceive to be the, the situation so um and allowing them to ask the questions and perhaps not having any answers you know i think the thing with leadership is we expect leaders to have all the answers and it's just the nonsense what you're really there to do is you're the you're the supporter cajoler encourager developer um so i think vulnerability is challenging people's perception which is you know leader is hero leader knows the answer um and if you look at great leaders they're nearly always uh, uh fantastic at getting great people around them they've they can they will show their own vulnerability they'll say they don't know at times they'll say i don't know the answer to this but i'm sure we can work it out um here are some challenges i think we need to deal with as an organization and we need to you know grasp the opportunity um so i think vulnerability is um about not saying you know all the answers um being quite truthful to yourself and and to others so that you know you're not trying to pull the walls over people's eyes you're not trying to play any games it just is what it is and we've got some stuff to do you know people turn up to work to work and i think people want their organization to be successful uh, and I think the job of a leader is uh, quite often is to paint the picture and get out of way, you know, so the vulnerability stuff is saying, you know, don't ask me all the questions. You go away, set yourself up as a team. You know, I might ask you the question, but you can go away and tell me what the answer is and how we structure ourselves or what we do and how we support our members or how we deliver. The, uh, uh, and that's the job of a leader, I think, is to 
to recognize that you don't know all the answers. You just need to be yourself, your real self, um, warts and all, and get people. And people, if they care for you as a leader, they'll follow you through. They'll do remarkable things for you because they, they know that you care about them and the organization and you're passionate for, you know, your, your passion will come through and they'll run through brick walls. They'll, they'll do, you know, they'll achieve things that they didn't think were achievable. They'll, um, you know, they, and, 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 and it's an amazing thing to see. And, and that's what I think true leaders are about. It's, you know, it's not about you. It's about them. You know, you lead through other people. Other people are the ones that predominantly do the work. Yours is to paint the picture, create the scope, try and put the tools and infrastructure in place, get out of the way, let your people get on with it. Oh, just, it's beautiful. And, and you know saying, Kevin, it's, you know, we've only got to know each other quite recently, but you, you, you role model this so beautifully through the examples you shared with the REC, with, with Royal Mail. And I just need also to reflect on, so I had Gary Ridge, the CEO of um, WD40, on mm. a couple of podcasts ago. And his interpretation of vulnerability is very linked to what you were saying. He said the best, the, you know, the three words I, I, I define by vulnerability is I don't know and being comfortable with yeah. that. And I just think, yeah. I, I genuinely believe what I see, you know, in work organizations I'm close to and in, in, in the network we both share, I still feel that that's quite hard for people yeah. at the moment. And, and, uh, in your work, how, how, how easy do you feel that is for leaders to say I don't know? And I appreciate it varies. I'm just wondering how common that is for you today in 2019. Well, yeah, I don't think it's common. It's not common enough. Is that, I mean, I would agree with that. I, I, I was trying to guess that percentage earlier on. Perhaps it's a quarter or a third have completely got it and feel comfortable in their own skin and, and can lead that way. I suppose there's another 20% third trying, you know, not quite sure, don't feel confident enough, find it all quite challenging. And then there's a third that don't get it, never will, don't want it, and, and believe that the world is a different place where it's carrot and stick, you know. Um, you know, that whole fundamental belief in organisations, which is if you don't manage people, will they do the right thing or wrong thing? I think that's the heart of it, you know. There are lots of people that believe if you don't micromanage people and tell them what to do, they won't do anything, you know. So it's a belief in human nature, really, at the heart of this. Um, mm. And I think for us, the journey's about that middle third, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm, I'd love to, I like to have the debate with the people that are at the other end of the spectrum, but it's a debate that's very hard to win. I'm really interested in the, the third, so I want to get the majority. I want to get more people in organisations behaving this way, and that's about that middle third that are trying, that understand it, instinctively feel they need to do stuff differently, but don't know how. And that's our work, isn't it? Because if you grab hold of them and you can give them the skills and confidence and coaching and the feedback, you know, then they'll start trying it and they'll start getting the results and they'll do more of that. And then, and then we're in the majority and we've got, you know, we've got a, a swing in our direction. And, and then perhaps the, the, the people that don't see it our way will just have to recognise that we're delivering the results and the superior performance and this is the way to do it. But... I think we've got to show them that, you know, it works every single time. So for me, it's about uh, winning the hearts and minds of the people that are, uh, are seeking to do it the right way. Just, I've got to say, Kevin, that's, I really love what you just described. That's the first time. This is, this is going to be, I think, maybe episode 53 of this podcast. We're in almost a year. And that angle, that clarity, yeah. first time I've heard it. 
describe that, like almost focus on that middle third, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Them up and then we can get to a majority of people believing in the, in the people as a, as a fundamental. I think that's beautiful, Kevin, really, really, really beautiful. Yeah. And, and I think it's also about, you know, we can't waste our time. You know, you, you don't want to fight the zero sum games. You want to work with people. Going, I, I sort of get what you're doing, but it doesn't feel right. doesn't feel comfortable. And, and it takes them longer and we have to invest more time and energy, but, you know, they're the ones where you, you've got, you know, you go to where they are and then work with them in that space. And, and I, feel, I, I think we've got a huge opportunity. And one of the things I've picked up from your podcast is this view that actually we're on the cusp of something, you know, perhaps we're beginning to win the battle. And I, I do feel that. I do feel that chief execs are beginning to recognise that all the value in their organisation is created by people. It's not by capital and machinery. So that, you know, that intellectually they get it. They just don't quite know how to do it. You know, they don't know how to uh, create a culture and a work environment where, you know, people aren't micromanaged. They can give her their best. And, and we've got managers that can inspire, motivate, engage, you know, and, you know, get people to uh, grow, learn, try things and um, work in a different way. No, wonderful. No, so, so thank you very much for sharing that. I think what I'd like to have a little talk little look at now is there's a couple of really interesting articles a that you've shared on social media but one that you wrote in particular which i thought was a really nice end to 2018 you spoke about the six um, the six key trends to be aware of in 2019 for hr kevin and i just thought it might be nice just to explore as a little bit of what we're discussing today some of some of those areas if that's okay with you yeah absolutely um, i think one of the things i'd like to touch on particularly that's linked to this podcast is are we brave enough to ask HRDs to tackle poor behaviour at the top of our organisations? Do you mind expect, you know, what, what are we seeing there? Is that still as valid today? Has that shifted positively for you? Has it gone another, another direction? Um, I, I, I think there's a, you just look at some of the behaviour. I mean, you know the organisations I'm talking about. I'm talking about BHS, I'm talking about Sports Direct, I'm talking about yeah. organisations that are, you know, clearly not treating their people well. Uh, and within, you know, and some of the Me Too staff, Ted, that goes on and on and on, the story after story. And the issue for me is there's HR directors in those organisations. Um, and um, I want those HR directors to feel supported. Um, I'd like them to feel that they should be going to non-execs. They should be whistleblowing. They should be, and what I mean is, you know, systemic, not where people make a mistake they say an inappropriate thing you know these things happen but someone is clearly or a group of people are clearly abusing their position um and their power and for me hr has got if we believe in values and ethics then we have to call that out and i i i, I mean i've tried to engage people at the cipt and say look you need to support these individuals because they're in a very uh, invidious position because you know, going, you know, saying it's a chief exec or other people on the board, you know, potentially going to non-execs um, and saying, you know, this is inappropriate, this is behaviour that isn't acceptable, is a tough place. And it may well involve them losing their job. So as an industry and as a profession, we should be positively, proactively supporting those individuals and saying, do the right thing and we'll back you up. Now, I don't know whether that's a fund. I don't know whether that's will give you some outplay. But I, the consequence of them behaving in that way and doing the right thing for that individual and the potentially their career and their family is quite severe. But I think that if we believe in what we espouse, 
then we have to support the people that are vulnerable, not just at the bottom of our organizations where there is exploitation quite often, but at the top of our organizations where people are behaving uh, poorly. And I think that we do need to be brave and courageous in that space and ask those individuals to do the right thing. Yes, yeah, thanks, thanks for sharing. I, I find it a really interesting discussion around courage and bravery. Um, so I think the flip side for me is vulnerability. You know, what, what's, yeah. what stops us stepping into those conversations? What are we afraid of? Yeah, I, I think it, what it comes down to, I suspect, is that people are scared that, you know, on that board, they could be completely isolated. The non-execs may turn a blind eye. And, you know, how do you then function in that environment where, you know, you said that the top team are not behaving correctly and the non-execs haven't supported you? There's nowhere to go, is there? Mm. There's very little place to go, you know. Um, so I think that it is about vulnerability um, and it is about, you know, careers and mortgages and all of that. So I think the point is, is we want people to act brave. So, you know, like when I was talking about managers, you want them to do the right thing. You have to support, you know, people are going to be vulnerable. You need the support. So it's okay. It's safe. We'll make it safe. We'll create an environment where you can do what you really think is the right thing to do rather than just leave, which often I think people do. And the behavior continues, you know, make a stand, be brave, challenge it, hold up the mirror. But to do that, we sort of as a profession, as a as a group of people that believe in the human side of business, have got to support these individuals, because if we don't support them, you know, we're asking them to, you know, uh, to take all the arrows on our behalf. And I'm not sure that's uh, fair either. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's really interesting. I had um, I was really grateful to have Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School who's done a lot of work yeah. on psychological safety on, on episode 29 and I just some of the things you've spoken about on our chat this evening really resonate as well around that failure part and that experimentation and it being okay to try something new without yeah, yeah, yeah. hearing a reprimand yeah I think that, that, that this safety bit's so key isn't it Kevin it is and I, I think it is about um trying to get managers just to, 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 to you know i mean there's loads of really great stuff if you read stuff around innovation and creativity it's always you you try stuff you but you reflect on it you learn from it you go again most great ideas most most great nirvana moments or not nirvana moments but those you know those light bulb moments are about hard work of people syst systemically failing for a long period of time and then they get the great idea so I think that's the whole point in organizations is we've got to accept that you've got to experiment, try stuff, stand back, reflect, learn. What can we take from this? How do we go again? And if you think about the whole conversation about agile, I mean, that's just a, you know, sprints, scrums, foul fast, all of that stuff is about just, um, you know, trying to get into a place where people can, you know, experiment play play is important you know you you look at kids don't you look at young kids and they ask the why question all the time you watch them play they'll build stuff they'll knock stuff down they'll and and they just you know we're incredibly you know uh, curious as a as human beings and you don't want to take that away from people when they come to work we need more of it and so we've got to find a way of encouraging people and some of that's about using language. I mean, I think failure is an interesting word. I just think if you talk about learning, people get it. Let's try it out. What do we learn from it? How do we go again? You know, it becomes easier in some ways. But 
but we do need to fail and we do need to to, to recognize it so but it does mean you've got to create a culture where people um get it and, and there are places i've worked and, and early in my career and organizations that i've uh, seen who you know don't treat people that way um and they keep people in boxes and it's the way it's always been done but you know the world catches up with those organizations because they have the answer once but unless you can reinvent uh what you do and how you do it you're most probably going to be obsolete at some point in the future and what are you seeing you know, you've got you've got a really interesting sort of you know, workload right now kevin in terms of sort of multiple different types of non-exec roles different strategic advisor roles what are some of the common themes you are seeing around the people agenda with maybe those those those, those variety of clients that you're working with I mean, one of the things, I mean, I didn't want to go on a PLC board. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to work in a big organization because you, you end up as a non-exec, just, you know, it's about governance and, uh, I don't know, remuneration committee and nomination committees and all that stuff. And I've done that and, I, and, it, and it's uh, boring. Um, so <laughs> I, we went out of my way to find organizations who were entrepreneurial and it was helping people that are growing a business. And, and it's really exciting because... What they want is just helpers. You know, where do I find the talent? How do I how do I protect the culture? How do I engage people? And the thing about entrepreneurs and owner managers quite often, or even early management teams, is they tend to take too much on themselves. You know, and they don't understand some of the stuff what we've been talking about. They haven't got a lot of internal resource around HR or learning and development and OD. So actually, being a non-exec with them has enabled me to help them think about how, uh, how they go about developing new products, how they take new products to market, their whole succession plan, how do they build capability, uh, how do they build an interest. It's fantastic because you're working, again, with people that have got energy, enthusiasm, and just want to learn, grow, and try stuff. You know, So it's, um, it's a great place to, to apply our trade with. So and I'm, I'm enjoying it. Oh, fantastic. Are you seeing this? That there was a Harvard Business Review report that you shared in the last couple of weeks around profit and purpose. And of course, we yeah, all, yeah. a lot of us know about BlackRock and you know, Larry Fink now, now talking about sustainable investments, etc. You know, how is that showing up for you in maybe what you're seeing in, in some of these roles or maybe just for you more generally, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, the whole private equity stuff. I mean, I've had a bad experience with private equity in Joanne into but i've had two or three that have been brilliant where you actually work with uh, some of these institutions who are funding businesses and funding growth and they recognize that what gets the return what delivers the value over a four or five year period is is the leadership it is the management it is the culture it is how you uh, develop people grow people and, and and what's interesting is they're often human capital businesses that I've been involved with. They're consultancy business or recruitment businesses or technology businesses. And you can see investors going, yeah, but we're interested in what talent have we got and what do we need and how should we structure the organization and how do we uh, motivate our people and how do we take them on the journey and how do, you know, that's that's really quite refreshing. So I do think that, uh, the private equity guys uh, are certainly ahead of other uh, institutional shareholders in understanding some of the, the people drivers of business performance. So I think that's, that is, it is quite refreshing. And I think, you know, I found it uh, rewarding and um, 
some of their insights are, 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 are quite different. You know, it, it, they are obviously driven by the, the numbers and the value in the business, but they understand what drives that. Uh, and if you've got the intellectual understanding and they know they don't know the answer. So again, they, in some ways they're quite vulnerable because they're putting in millions and millions of pounds to, to back a management team to grow a business on, you know, it's, you know, 20 people in their thirties and forties that have got a great idea. They've done quite okay, but we're going to back them to grow, develop, employ people and, 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 and grow this business. So in some ways they're, they're showing even more faith in the leadership and management of uh, these sorts of people or human capital businesses. Uh, fascinating. I think as we start to look to wrap up, Kevin, there's a couple of things I'd like to wrap up with, if I may. There's, there's this, first of all, I need to acknowledge you and just say congratulations on being recognised as one of the top 100 tech influencers recently. I think that's a, a very cool accolade. <laughs> yeah, it's always nice. I mean, you, you know, I think I'm not quite sure how some of these lists are put together, Gary, but the point is it doesn't matter. It's about celebrating success, isn't it? It's about yeah. saying, here's some people doing some interesting work. And I know that when you see those lists, I normally go through and say, well, who am I following and who do I know? Mm -hmm. And I'll connect with a few other people and you get some interesting insights and you make some connections and you bump into people at conferences. And it's, you know, it's rewarding because I think you just want people that have got a similar view, maybe different and in different, uh, different sort of nuances, but a similar view about um, technology and what it's going to do and how we need to prepare for the future. I mean, I do think there are some big challenges coming down the line and I do think you know in my uh, TEDx talk I talk a lot about AI and machine learning and how this is going to transform organizations you know the jobs in the middle are just disappearing very very fast how do you manage careers how do people grow how do they develop um, and I do think we're going to have some societal real problems around inequality and stuff so you know I think the point is in and the answer is lifelong learning it's getting people to learn develop grow throughout their life so that they can add more value and that means I think we need to do a lot around education we need some new institutions to help people you know people as they you know think about um Linda Grant's book you know the 100 year life we're going to be working until our 70s and potentially 80s retiring if we ever retire very very late you know 50 or 60 years in the labor market you know are people really going to be doing uber driving jobs and delivery jobs and just getting by and having to do two or three things you know, okay, but how do we create opportunities for people to learn? Those that want to learn, develop, grow, you know, may have fallen out of school, maybe a late starter, people coming back after having children, uh, elder people want to think, actually, I could still contribute. I want to do something different. You know, we need institutions that fund learning and development, help people get access to training, development, qualifications, so that we try and make the best. Because, you know, whatever's coming, there is only people and technology. And, the one bit that we need to invest in as much as in the technology is in the people side. So I think we need a different response from government in terms of skills, agenda, education. Uh, and um, if we don't do that, I think it's going to be some challenging years ahead. Yeah, so it's, it's re really interesting reflections, those, Kevin. I've had a, quite a few conversations the last couple of weeks. One on the education front, I'm actually an enterprise advisor with a, with a school here down in Dorset. And there's definitely some good work going on around trying to align what people are learning in school and what they actually bring yeah. to the workplace. So that's, that's a good thing. And I think what's interesting, though, is that I learned from a friend, Kevin, I don't know if you've had similar experiences, but that I've got two daughters. One daughter, age four, has just had her first uh, introduction to mindfulness. 
<laughs> in school and a nine-year-old yeah, 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 yeah. experience of coaching. So there's this really young generation that are getting experiences of really high value adding human development that a lot of us, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, if I had nothing apart from paying for it myself for the last couple of years. So I think it's a really interesting shift coming yeah. in the next 10, 15 years, I think. I hope so. I mean, I really hope you're right. I mean, I, I, I want to be optimistic. There's a fantastic book I read uh, over just the last week. It's called Natural Bone Learners. It's by Alex Beard. And it is our incredible capacity to learn and how we can harness it. It's a fantastic book. And it's all about education. Um, so I would certainly recommend that if people are really interested in thinking about learning as a way of growing and developing and enhancing your life and stuff. But you know, we need to system it. I mean, I think the problem is, is there's loads of good stuff I see in education, but it's all piecemeal. And there's mm -hmm. still the fundamental processes are schools and universities are exam factories. We're just turning out people with knowledge where they can get the knowledge bit at two clicks on their phone. What we really need to be doing is getting them to learn how to learn and getting them to reflect. And, you know, going through the learning process is what then creates the value. Because if you can learn to learn, you can use a, learn a musical instrument, you learn to drive. You learn to do this job, that job, whatever job you need to do, because you understand yourself and how you you relate to the world. Anyhow, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what. As, 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 <laughs> I said as we wrap up, I want to get. I'm going to get another hour in now. I think. No, so seriously, I've got one. I've got one more thing, Gary. I want to say, and that's a bit. I want to talk about HR just for a moment. No, please. You You've got plenty of time. We've got plenty of time. I was just saying, brilliant. Go for it. So, so one of the things that I that I, I, I'm. I suppose at one level, I'm disappointed. You know, I'm disappointed by the HR profession, which I perceive myself to be part of. Because, you know, the way that we try and run HR, change organisations, is through policies, processes and practices. You know, that's the traditional way that it's taught. That's the way that most people are doing it. You know, we have to pay people and we need to hire people and we need to train people. And I understand a lot of transactional activity. But for me, the opportunity for HR to work up and to influence and change the whole culture of an organisation. And there are some great people doing great work. So I'm certainly not knocking the individuals and certainly lots of people trying to do remarkable stuff. But, it, you know, I think we're at a tipping point. I just need the HR uh community to to recognize that we've got to invest a huge amount of time and energy of getting the right people into the to the people side of businesses that we need to develop them in a different way we need to think about how we do our work is it really the right way you know i think some of the stuff we do around procedures practices policies get in the way they stop people learning we're part of the problem not part of the solution and i think that we've got a huge opportunity to to, to, to really step into that space and and develop people and bring different people to it and utilize the the knowledge that we have and the evidence that we have to convince people to manage their organizations and to lead their organizations in different ways so i think there's a great opportunity and i just think we're coming to that point you know you can just feel it that we know that we need to step into the future you know i, I came back into hr and spent 10 years at the rec and and when I did it, well, where's all the new thinking and the new learning? And there isn't been much, if I'm being honest. It's the same stuff, you know. They're, they're, you know, there's been lots of isolated great books and isolated interesting thoughts, and you know, groups of people doing interesting work. But there hasn't been any kind of systemic, holistic view of how we actually 
really grasp the human side of business and I think that's a huge opportunity and I suppose that's what uh, I just want to be you know talking about to people in the next uh, few years really. No, I think it's a really interesting thing to share. And there's a couple of points I'd like to sort of touch on that with you. <clears throat> if we go back to when you actually described your experience helping transform and turn around Royal Mail, yeah. you spoke something about really, really interesting, which was you had a team under learning, I believe you said, which included OD, organisational design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I keep seeing, and I see on L&D Insight, again, great people, great debates, but there seems to be an identity crisis in HR. It doesn't matter whether it's L&D, OD, HR. Yeah. Everyone's always fighting about who owns part of the, bloody, the, the part of the department. And I wonder if that's part it, of the problem, Kevin. Yeah, I think, I think you know, we argue amongst ourselves. And, and the point is, is we're not the problem. Well, we might be the problem, but the, 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 the battle, the war that needs to be won is convincing other people, is convincing line managers and leaders. You know, that's our job is we don't really manage people we are there as facilitators coaches educators um you know and and we need to um be able to take you know the reason why i think that happens i'm really honest i think you know i think a lot of od people can't really work within the business i think they they bounce off of it they do try and do some really nice human work but it doesn't land because you've got to understand the business and i mean the book that i've written is about it's about business strategy it's about people strategy. It's about all the different bits. But the bit that gets me is that, you know, the leaders don't get the people side. And actually the, the HR, the OD, the change people don't quite get the business side. And actually it's the, it's and. It's not one or the other. It's both. That's what makes the organizations fly. And, and that's what worries is we end up with a debate amongst ourselves about what's the right tool, what's the new way of doing it. Well, great, interesting. We need to have those conversations. But... It's the application that's important. Does it land? Can we create better organisational design? Can we take managers on a journey where they're managing people differently? Can we get them to release, you know, the capability of their people to outperform, to do things which are remarkable? You know, um, that's the point, isn't it? You know, we don't want to be having interesting, clever sort of conversations to the side when the businesses carry on doing what they've always done because we're just we're bystanders and, and I think we've got to be brave. We've got to be courageous. We, I think we need to bring different people. I think we need to bring business people that have been leaders in to our community, give them the skills and development and then put them back. You know, I think converts, I think when I've heard you talk, Gary, you always talk about this moment where you, you know, you, you reflected on your life and what you've been doing and what you've been driving. You know, they're the people we need, you know, the people, it doesn't matter when you come to it, as long as you come to it, we'll give you the skills and capabilities. We then need to put you back into organisations because you'll have the credibility. You know, you'll have the credibility to say, I've worked for 20 years in sales and marketing or finance or whatever it is. You know, I'm not just one of these, you know, people that have been in um, HR all my life and played around with models and conceptual stuff and not made it happen. You know, I'm a great believer in, I like HR people that have done line jobs. Yeah. I, I think yeah. you need to you you need to understand what managing people's really like. The hard stuff, you know, the soft stuff, managing people is the hardest thing in leadership and management. And we need to recognize that and help people do it, you know. And let's stop, you know, we've got a great new model. Let's do competency frameworks. Let's go off and create new incentive programs. Let's think about how we go from a matrix structure to this structure. Ah, interesting. I'm not saying it doesn't have a place. 
but you know there are some fundamental hire good people you know the hiring process in most organizations is poor at best we're still interviewing people for most leadership and management jobs when we've known for 40 years it's it's as just marginally more predictive of in-job performance than random so all the data says interviews don't really work what do we still do we're still interviewing people to give them jobs you know we're not doing collaborative hiring getting more people to look at people we're not testing people like we should they or assessing them with activity that's closer to the job you know we, you know we need to get and the more you do that you get rid of the unconscious bias so we challenge some of the things that are important but you hire better people get better at hiring people and then think about the people that are going to be managing people when they join your organization hire the right people get frontline managers to be able to care for and manage their people effectively and we're 80 percent there you know i really do you know and then all the other stuff is all added value but you know let's not end up with a nice you know wonderful conversation to the side about things that we're interested in you know we've got to otherwise we're not really making life better for the millions of people that are at work every day that turn up and are demotivated and don't enjoy it and don't get rewarded and don't grow and don't develop you know so we need to recognize that we've got to try and win the wars not having interesting little skirmishes amongst ourselves about what's the right way to do it Sorry, that was a bit of a rant, Gary. But... <laughs> it, it, it's a perfect, perfect, perfect thing. We need a bit of a rant in a, in a podcast. <laughs> no, you're being constructive. You know, you're not you're not being you're not being confrontational. You're just being reflective yeah. of what you see. And I think if I wrap up our conversation, you know, what I'm loving, I'm hearing about, you know, the importance of caring for one another. You know, I love your phrase, learning to learn. You know, let's get away from learning a task and a job and feeling that's a job for life you know let's keep on stretching let's keep being curious and i just think the more curious we are the more we enjoy stuff you know it's as simple yeah, as that yeah. <laughs> yeah. the other thing that you know the other thing that i you know it's a, it's a great piece of work what was it 25 years ago the whole break of all stuff the gallop stuff you know about strengths yeah. just i mean you know you go into organizations now i mean i was talking to some hr directors and talking about you know strength-based hiring strength-based development and they look at you like you come from mars and you're thinking well guys this is this is just you know this is how you this is how you develop people find what they enjoy what are they already good at get them to do more of it that will make them better as an employee you know find somebody else that likes the other side of the job that they don't build you know and that's why i think one of the things we miss in organizations is teams you know for me performance del delivering any great task any great thing is nearly always delivered by a group of people you know we always know that teams and groups of people outperform individuals doesn't matter how gifted the individual is but you look at how we manage our organizations we talk all about organizations and we talk about individuals very rarely do we talk about how do you create great teams how do you really create um uh, how do we give the tools to managers so that they can, you know, understand each of their individuals, create goals for teams, because teams are what really makes organisations fly, you know, and I just think we miss it so often, you know, um, and you see it day in, day out. So for me, that's why that frontline management is so important, because you get somebody, it doesn't affect one individual, it affects five, six, ten, fifteen. And if you can get great people managing teams, you'll get a whole organization. And so, you know, I'm passionate about, we seem to miss this bit out of the mix. And if you think about processes and policies, 
and what tools we give managers. We don't spend a lot of time talking to them about teams, do we? You know, we just don't. What's really interesting for me, though, as well, is that you've used the word a couple of times, or at least once earlier in our chat, which I loved, <laughs> is the, you used the term which I agree with, which is investment in people yeah. and people as a cost. And I think, again, yep. part of the paradigm, I think, that we've got a little bit of an overhang with is I see human beings, and I wrote an article on this actually a, a couple, about a month ago, about exponential human potential. I genuinely believe we are on the edge of unleashing incredible amounts of value from human beings if we can just get out of the way of them, as you said earlier on. But I do yeah. feel as long as we're seeing people as a cost and not an investment, an unappreciated yeah. asset, I think we're going to keep running into this, Kevin, to be honest. I think we do, and I think, the, but there's loads of evidence out there. You know, if you, the one thing I always talk about to HR people is about customers, and they go, "Customers? What do you mean? The people? Like, no, 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 the external customer. How does this organisation create value? You know, for customers. And if you think about most of it, if you're in a service business, it's about how you service the customer, how you answer the call, how you meet them in a shop, how you serve them a meal. If it's you know car dealership, how you sell people a car, how you do with a service. You know, if it's a manufacturing organization or a product organization, it's about having great R&D people that understand the requirements of customers. So in reality, the whole stuff about people and unleashing people is about providing greater value to customers who are also people. So the actual interesting stuff, and use loads of stuff. You go back to the customer service profit chain, some of the work that Captain and Norton did around balance scorecard. It was all about showing that actually the bit that drives performance and superior performance for customers over the long term is the people stuff. <laughs> you know, so the evidence and the data is there. It's just that people aren't recognizing that to get the return, it, you, you invest. Like you invest in, you buy a piece of kit, you invest in people, you'll get a return. Which does mean that one of the things that HR and the people people, the other people, whatever we are, I don't know what we are, Gary, a collective, a community, whatever we are, people that are interested in the people side of business and human beings, we've just got to capture that learning and play it back. You know, this is the investment, this is the return, that's the business case. You know, I don't, I don't you know, we don't have to be scared of it. It's there, it's clear. There's clarity about it. We don't, you know, you might need to prove it, but, you know, try something in a part of the business, find some managers that want to do some interesting work, help them develop and grow their people, get out of the way, look at the results, the, you know, customer service results, revenue, profit, and you will get the return. So we've just got to capture the learning and amplify. And so we bring people to the party, you know, people that may not, instinctively get it but want to manage performance or want to get a greater return in their organization they go there's something in this i can see the data i can see the evidence so let's get at it let's invest in our people let's train them let's grow them. let's get managers to do it properly and all of a sudden we'll get the results that we want it's you know something it's it's, it's so obvious though isn't it for, for us it is but at the same time you know i think there's yeah. a beautiful podcast i listened to between um, bob chapman from barry waymiller and a guy called yeah. Kevin Monroe the other day, and um, he was brilliant. Bob, this is a three billion, you know, dollar company. He said, "Why do we ask for the return on investment on caring?" Yeah. Just well, it, 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 it's fair. <laughs> it's a fair challenge. It's a fair pushback, Gary. I think the point is, is you know, what we're trying to do is to convince the middle third to come with us, and convince the other ones that this is the right approach. And to do that, yeah. we're going to have to we're going to have to have lots of great examples. Um, 
And there are some businesses, you know, there's lots of businesses that are already there. I'm working with some now that get it and are just doing it. And you don't have to go through that loop, but there are lots of others that don't. And so for, for the HR directors and the people that, because we want to work with them, they're the, they're the middle third, that's the battleground. So we've got to give them the case studies from a lot that have already got it so that they can win the argument and then we can go again. You know, I mean, it, you know, and it isn't turn it into too much of a mechanistic stuff. It's just saying that this stuff works. This stuff, this stuff is about doing great things for customers. And it's about showing you care as well, isn't it? You do great things for customers, they come back, they spend more money, they like your product, they like how you, you treat them. I mean, this is, you know, you're right, it's sort of common sense, isn't it? You say it sometimes and, and, and you can see people looking at you and you go, this, this sort of stuff works. You look at the best hotels in the world, you look at the best companies, the best service companies, and they'll always have people really high on the agenda, you know, because they, 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 they know over time they've tested it and it works. Well, do you know, so I'm just going to add a little thing in here as well. So within an immediate team that I work close with, Kevin, we transformed literally from going fear-based, so looking rearview mirror, what doesn't work, whose fault is it? Over three yeah, years, yeah. we added over 6 million sales, nearly 2 million margin. No, no M&A influence, no extra headcount. Literally just a shift in mindset and inclusion. Just there, there's your evidence if anyone needs it. Fantastic. That's what I mean, Gary. Those are the stories. you just got to capture them. We've got to write them up. We've got to keep going. And we've got to give, you know, and that's about confidence. So there are HR directors that believe the right thing, that want to do the right thing, that just get, you know, they're doing all sorts of activity which don't add any value and they want to get to this stuff. So we've got to help them. You know, that's our, you know, it's our jobs as developers and, and, you know, people that believe in the human side of business. We've got to give them the evidence, the confidence, the belief to be able to do the right thing and try and, you know, do that change so that they can, Create great places to work, rewarding careers, and deliver great performance on the bottom line. And you can, you know, that's the whole point. It's a virtuous circle. It works for everybody. Well, you've left me with one of my favourite ever takeaways from this first year of podcasting, Kevin. We need to create the space. You know, we've got to help people learn how to learn. I just think that's a wonderful, wonderful reflection, really. Good. I'm pleased. I'm. I hope there's something in there for everyone. You know, I mean. I, We've gone on a bit and we've wandered off in all sorts of tangents, but sometimes those are the best conversations, aren't they? They are always the best conversations. And as you know, by being uh, kindly listening to a few of these before, they still fit in nicely. So look, how can people reach out to you, Kevin? What's the best way to connect you if they want to follow up the conversation? With you? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I, I love Twitter. Remarkable thing. I was convinced of that um, by some people at the REC. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm happy for you to share emails or, or I don't mind however people reach out to me. I'm, I'm more than happy to have a conversations and, and to, um, you know, help people wherever I can. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure all those contact details are in the show notes, Kevin. And look, you've been an absolute joy and I, I really hope there's going to be a, a follow up to this at some point in the future. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have another conversation at some point, Gary. Cheers. Have a good evening. Thanks, Cheers. Kevin. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Thanks. Thank Thanks for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Not at all. Bye-bye. Hi there. Your Value Through Vulnerability host, Gary Turner here, just wrapping up this brilliant conversation with Kevin Green. I'm not sure about you as the listener, but I've got at least 20 different takeaways from this really in-depth in and uh, impactful conversation with Kevin. A few of my key takeaways 
uh, just in case they're of help to you as the listener. I think when we look at this Royal Mail journey that, that Kevin was so um, integral to, you know, they had 4,000 HR staff at one point. That's one HR person per 50 people. I know organizations, including mine, that have probably got one per sort of four or 500 people. I don't know what the right number is. I don't know what the wrong number is, but that does sound like an awful lot of staff. Um, and also a budget of 157 million. It's just incredible. It's just an incredible uh, numbers that Kevin was dealing with. I think the important thing he mentioned is that sometimes when you need to reinvent an organization, genuinely transform, that means breaking things. So you do need to break things down and put them back together again. And I do see in my experience, organizations are very fearful to challenge the status quo, to change the, the, the prevailing business model. But uh, as Royal Mail showed with the, the switch over to email and to the different ways of communicating, you know, we have to. We, we have to be open and willing to disrupt ourselves to coin Whitney Johnson's great work. What I like is also Kevin spoke about that if you look back at his career, it's all about business and all about people. The two things are entwined and sums up his journey. I think that's so, so powerful because we still have, still have way too much focus on the metrics and on the outcomes and not enough on the people. I firmly believe that pretty much anyone I speak to um, attests to the same point. And I think the other thing that's interesting, and this links to the last comment, is Kevin said he does feel that chief execs are beginning to recognize that all the value in their organizations um, is created by people. They just don't quite know how to um, adopt that and how to engage with that. So there's, there's probably a mindset issue here. There's, you know, not going to use generational because we're all the same, uh, but fundamentally people have become more socialized in terms of their, their leadership style, maybe living more in fear, et cetera. So I just think I really, really hope that anybody listening to this, whether you are a chief exec, if you're a, a senior leader, if you've got your own business, just think about that. You know, it's all about your people. I've told multiple times, and I mentioned it in this podcast, of my immediate team and how we transformed that team of just 15 people and increased the sales by 48% and the margin by 42, just by being intentionally human-centered, designing work around and not in spite of our people. We need a great business model, absolutely. But outside of that, as Kevin says, just get out of the way and let your people thrive. I also loved Kevin's comment around if you really invest in people, you give them the space, you give them the development, you give them the tools, they can achieve remarkable things. I think it's just such a beautiful, beautiful statement. And I think what's also important there, we're talking there as leaders, as the organization, to give. It's not all about take from your people, extract the most value, take, take, take. This is actually how do you unleash that innate brilliance of all of your people? And we need to create that space. I fully, fully agree with that. And the last thing I wanted to reflect on was uh, Kevin's challenge to HR. Um, I think what's really, really interesting, and you know, myself, I've seen myself very much as somebody that bridges my international sales role and also the, uh, the world of people, is there's no right or wrong here, but Kevin's view and his experience is that he likes HR people that have done line jobs. And a personal reflection for me, if any of you listening have got any um, research or, or surveys on this, what percentage of HR people have worked outside of HR at some point during their career who currently work in the function. And I think the other thing I just want to wrap up with here is that Kevin spoke about that leaders often don't get the people side, but actually HR, the OD and change people don't quite get the business side either. And I thought it was a really interesting reflection. You sort of, in the passing of social media and conversations, you, you sort of, you, you brush over that, but we're not as clear about that point. So actually how often do you actually bring those leaders and the people functions together just to, in an open, safe environment, discuss what are you seeing? What are we seeing? What's the objective? How are we going to get there? 
I really would question how often is that space created, that safe space to allow the different functions to come together and genuinely just co-create different versions of the future, reflects on where they are. You know, I just find it so, so interesting. Every, everybody's so busy reacting to the day-to-day that they don't take time to be curious and to step into understanding others. So that's just a few of my uh, wrap-up uh, reflections. I really love this conversation with Kevin. Appreciate his time. You can find his contact details in the show notes. I really hope that you'll join us on episode 53 of this, the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. Thank you. Thank you.